Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we revisit Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. After World War I, Barnhouse returned from Europe to the United States in 1925 and settled in Philadelphia. He took classes at the University of Pennsylvania and served as a teaching assistant in the history department. For two years, he held the pastorate of Grace Presbyterian Church. In 1927, he was called to the 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia, a struggling congregation of 347 people, which he would lead for the next 35 years. As early as 1928, Barnhouse broadcast his weekly Vesper services on the radio, which eventually became his famous Bible Study Hour. The program quickly grew, and at its peak, was broadcast at over 455 stations nationwide. Today's message is from Psalm 37. In Barnhouse's words, an old man's advice for troubled times. Psalm 37. Which I have entitled An Old Man's Advice for Troubled Times. I'm going to speak on some, ver- some words in the first eight verses. I would like to have you have the Bibles open. I called it An Old Man's Advice for Troubled Times because in verse 25 you will see, I have been young and now am old. So we know that this was David speaking when he was an old man. And if you look at the very top in front of verse 1, it says, A Psalm of David. When I was a young preacher, I rejoiced in verses such as Paul's, Let no man despise thy youth. And at times I may have been rather brash about it. I was going to see to it that no man should despise my youth. But as I grow older, I'm beginning to realize that I know much more now that than I did in those days, but furthermore, everything that I do know, I hold in quite different attitudes than I had when I was young. Uh, Knowledge from an older man carries a weight of maturity that is infrequent in younger men. I was reading just this week a statement about Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of our republic, pointing out that he was one of the few men in history who had a tremendous influence on national and even world affairs when he was 18 years of age because he wrote anonymous leaflets that were printed in New York and that set on fire much of the independence movement that later resulted in his great friendship with Washington and Thomas Jefferson And all of these things were written and people were attributing them to John Jay and to Samuel Adams and here they were being written by an 18-year-old boy who later became one of the greatest thinkers and gave to Thomas Jefferson much of his philosophy that developed in the religious freedom of our country. But for every Alexander Hamilton who comes forth at the age of 18 able to shake the world, there are many, many men that do not get into their stride until... They have been matured and ripened by the passage of years. David, when he was young, he killed Goliath. When he was old, there was a momentary lapse in which he fell into great and grievous sin. 
But I think that sometimes people have a wrong idea about David from this and must realize that on the whole, his older life was a magnificent testimony to the grace and power of God. Now David in his later life was living in times when there was ferment in the world and in his own kingdom where there were rebellions and where the wicked were flourishing. And the times in which he wrote must have been as difficult for the people in that day as the times in which we live are difficult for the citizens of the world in our day. And I want you to note in verse 1 that he says, Fret not thyself. And if you go back to, down to verse 7, it says, Fret not thyself. And if you turn to verse 8, it says, Fret not thyself. So three times he says, Fret not thyself. I looked up this word fret. It has to do with uh, a term of anger rising from the idea of heat. Uh, Forty-two times this word that is translated fret, 42 times it is translated that God's wrath was kindled against them. And 10 times it is translated his wrath waxed hot or was hot against the people. Now, a modern equivalent, fret not thyself, you almost literally could translate it, don't be burned up. Today in modern slang, oh, I was burned up. Well, God says here, don't be burned up. And if you'll notice, go back to these three verses again. First of all, fret not thyself because of evildoers. And then in verse 7, fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Fret not thyself, in verse 8, and here the translation in the King James Version is very bad, for it says, fret not thyself in any wise to do evil, but rather the Hebrew definitely says, fret not thyself, it only tends to evil. In other words, not that you do the evil, but if you fret yourself, that all it can produce is an evil result. Now you and I live in a world where wicked men prosper. I don't know how many people remember the politics of Philadelphia back a few years ago, but there was a man named there who owned down in South Philadelphia a thousand acres of swamp land. He was a contractor. He got the contract to build the North Broad Street subway. And in that contract, he got $20 a truck for taking the dirt out of the subway. Well, they started in 1926 the sesquicentennial, and he rented his swampland to the city to build the World's Fair on it, and they had to put fill on it, so he provided it at $20 a truckload, and he took it out and got $20 for taking it out of the subway, $20 per truck for putting it on his own land, then they leveled it off and put the sewers in and got it ready for the exposition all at the expense of the city, and then uh, when it was over, he made a subdivision. He also built, built a church which bears his name. Now, you see, these things are evil. If we did not stand up and say that the graft and corruption was evil, there's a certain gentleman in Philadelphia, I heard someone speaking about his mixture into so many affairs of business and politics. They said he's made so much money he can afford to be honest. Well, uh, whether he is or not is another question. But the Bible says, fret not thyself, fret not thyself of these men who seem to prosper. Fret not thyself. 
A recent medical report that I read in a secular magazine said that almost certainly ulcers were the result of stress, of men who get too much fretting in their systems and it boils out in ulcers. Now, God says, don't do it. Now, this does not mean that we're not to take sides. This does not mean that we're to sit and fold our hands and say, well, the world is going to the devil. Let's just look the other way while it goes. Because we consider their evil deeds and in our thinking and in our action, we must always be on the side of righteousness. But we learn from the scripture that evil men, the Hoffas and the rest of them, are to be left to God. Now, there are those who sit complacently when I speak thus of Judas, oh yes, anybody can condemn him. The Inquisitors, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin. And the people sit complacently when you talk about these men of the sins of the past. But they start a little uneasily when we remind them that in our own America we have had men of very great evil influence. I read the other day how that America righteously must stand for peace and must be willing to go to war to stop any use of force in aggression. And my mind went back over the history of the United States and I remembered that James K. Polk, when he was president of the United States, ruthlessly made war on Mexico as illegal and vile a war in, as in history in order that we might steal Arizona and Texas and New Mexico and take it away. And men in Philadelphia, I discovered when I was looking up the history of it, there were men in Philadelphia that Polk had to fight because the Philadelphians wanted the United States at the same time to annex all of Mexico and make it a part of the United States and bring them into subjection. Well, Polk was just as bad as General Mao or Khrushchev. And what shall we say about Theodore Roosevelt, who made a deal with the Japanese after they had beaten the Russians in 1905, and he said, we let you have full right of way in Korea, providing you agree never to touch the Philippines. The Japanese said, all right. Five years later, they had annexed Korea. In our early history, our stealing of the Panama Canal, all of these things, America has as vile a history as Russia or China or anybody else in the past. And today, we've made enough money to be honest. Now, when we understand these things, what are we going to say of these men and of the modern men in the labor union rackets and all the rest of these utterly horrible and devilish things that are going on in our life? Well, I can't do anything about it. Personally, I can stand and say I witness against them, but I'm not going to get ulcers about it. Fret not thyself. And to us, God says, fret not yourselves. Do not work yourselves into a heat. Look with coolness, dispassionately, upon the facts. Now, the reason that he can say this, fret not thyself, fret not thyself, fret not thyself, I want you to look very closely now at the 37th Psalm as we see why we are not to be able to fret ourselves. Verse 2, they shall soon be cut down. They shall wither. Verse 9, they shall be cut off. Verse 10, they shall not be. Verse 13, his day is coming. Verse 15, their sword shall enter their own heart. Verse 15, 
their bows shall be broken. Verse 17, their arms shall be broken. Verse 20, they shall perish. Verse 20, they shall be burned as the fat of lambs. Verse 22, they shall be cut off. Verse 28, their seed shall be cut off. Verse 34, they shall be cut off. Verse 38, they shall be destroyed. Verse 38, they shall be cut off. Now, you see, this is pretty cumulative. God Almighty has gotten himself out on a limb. And the only way he can be, keep from being a liar is that he shall bring these men into judgment. And God says he's going to do it. In other words, says God, fret not thyself, fret not thyself, fret not thyself. I am going to deal with the evils of this world. So God has really bound himself to act. Now, having seen that part of the picture of this psalm, we now come to the very beautiful admonitions for ourselves. What are we to do? And I call to your attention in verse 3, I, the beginning of five verbs which we are commanded. Verse 3, trust. Verse 4, delight. Verse 5, commit. Verse 7, rest. Verse 7, wait patiently. And in these five verbs, we have our order of action as to how we're to live. We are to trust, to delight, to commit, to rest, and to wait. Now, let's look at these verbs. When I began to study, I... Oh, I... I I remember as we were reading Psalm 119 this morning, it says, I rejoice in thy word as one that findeth great spoil. And, and I think of soldiers in battle as the American soldiers suddenly advanced in a tank to the mouth of a salt mine in southern Germany. And when they went down into the salt mine, they found, I think, 72 Rembrandts and Franz Hals, all the treasures of the museums of Berlin were in a salt mine. And suddenly, as our soldiers came upon the mouth of the salt mine, saw the guard there, they discovered that they had vast treasures. And what the lieutenant who made that discovery must have thought when he realized that here were the treasures of art, that here were the magnificences of the museums of Berlin, and that he had found this spoil. Well, as I sat with my Hebrew books this week, and as I, I went in again and again to, this, to these five verbs, uh, it was as someone finding spoil, and I want to share the booty with you. Now, if you take a good concordance and look up the word trust, 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 you'll soon discover that in the Hebrew there are many different words that are translated trust. For example, look at verse 40, the last line in this psalm, he shall save them because they trust in him. The Revised Standard Version translates it because they take refuge in him. And this Hebrew word in verse 40, trust, is not at all the same word as in verse 3 where it says trust. But the word in verse 3 is batach and is used in modern Hebrew in Jerusalem for a wrestling term to throw someone down on his back. Well, we can readily see how throwing someone down on his back came to mean to throw yourself or your cares and put them upon the Lord. Get a good grip on yourself. 
And when you've got a good grip on yourself, put yourself down on your back on the Lord. Just put yourself there. This is uh, the same word that's used in Isaiah 26, 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he has thrown himself down upon thee because he trusteth him. The story goes in a mission field in India that there was an Indian woman who had been saved and as she grew old and feeble, she was a woman of some wealth in India and she felt that the missionary who was helping her was being drained by her weakness. And as they walked along, she tried to let the missionary go free and the missionary said, if you love me, lean on me. Well, this is exactly what the Lord is saying to us here. Do you love me? Well, lean on me. And when the Lord asks you thus to lean on him, he's saying that this is the way we have to face the problems of the life in which we live, in the kind of world in which we live, in the kind of nation in which we live. For we must say, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But I want you to notice that it's not the type of leaning that says, well, here I am going to heaven in flowery beds of ease. No, no, because this text says trust in the Lord and do good. So it's a leaning that is one of positive action. It's resting in the Lord, but really producing. Secondly, it says that you delight yourself, delight thyself in the Lord. And as I looked up the word delight, I discovered that there are no less than 16 different Hebrew words that are translated by delight. At this point, I had to take myself by the mental nap of the neck and force myself to go and study what I was studying because I would have loved at that moment to have gone aside and created a sermon on the 16 delights of the Lord because they have very many different meanings. And someday I may produce that sermon and show you all that the Lord has. I remember preaching here two or three years ago and bringing in incidentally the fact that one word for delight in Hebrew means to smell. And you can see the mother just after she's bathed the baby. She just takes hold of that little baby and puts it up and she breathes deeply. And you can see the mother just smelling the child. And that's the word that God uses for himself that he delights in us. He smells us that he looks upon us as little babies whom he has cleaned. And there we are, and he, he, he delights in us. But that's not the word that's being used here. For the word that is used here is ganag, and it has to do with allurement and enticement and is used of the amorous gestures of women. In other words, when the bride smiles at the bridegroom, in a way that will increase his interest in her. This is what God is saying. This is what God is saying to us. We're to delight ourselves in him. We're, we're to go to him and say, Lord, you're wonderful. I love you. And when we understand this, I love you, he'll begin to do things for you. You know, I, I'm going to put you to a test. If before the sun sets tonight, or we'll put it before you go to bed tonight, you alone by yourself say to the Lord, Lord, I love you. You may never have done it, but I will tell you this, that if you do, God will make himself known in your heart 
in a way that you've never known. Some of you are frustrated. Some of you feel the loneliness of living alone. Well, you go to the Lord and say, I love you. And the Lord God Almighty will give you something that you have never known before. In fact, it says it in the next line, delight thyself. In other words, go to him and look at his glances as he tries to woo you. Go as he seeks to draw you to himself and, and delight yourself in him. Accept this delight. And it says he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Caution, caution, not the desires of your old heart. Not the heart that's described in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. No, no, he does not give you the desires of your Adamic heart. But the desires of your renewed heart. And if you delight yourself and say, Lord, I love thee. Well, you know, when you truly love somebody, you want to please them. You'll sometimes do things that ordinarily you wouldn't do simply because you know it'll give pleasure. Well, it's the same way to the Lord. When once we have begun to delight in him, to take that love which is the highest of human love and turn it upwards towards the Lord, the invisible Lord, to get to know him personally, to understand him as a person, that he's real, and he will reveal himself to you as a person. And let me tell you this, your Christian life can be as orthodox as Satan who believes and trembles until you know him as a person. May I say this to students of Bible college or theological seminary, you who are occupied with the Bible as a textbook and who have to learn passages and doctrines and write these things out, danger, danger, danger that the Bible should become for you something that is stiff and mechanical and that Christ and God should become for you something that was nothing more than dogma and doctrine. But oh, when you know him as a person, delight. Then the third word is in verse 5 where it says, commit thy way unto the Lord. And again I discovered that there are 16 different words in Hebrew that are translated in English by commit. Oh, there's the committing of a body to the grave. There is the committing of one's uh, self to a pursuit of game as a hunter commits himself to the way. But here, this word, galal, is, is a word that in the margin is translated, roll thy way. Even in the Bibles that you have in the pews, uh, there opposite verse 5 under the little letter D, it says, roll thy way upon the Lord. Now this word way, roll thy way upon the Lord, originally the word way meant a path. But then it began to be a whole manner of being. In fact, we have adopted it in the United States for the American way of life. Well, you have a way of life, and what this text is saying is roll your way of life upon the Lord. When I looked at this in the Hebrew, I happened to have a Bible that on the same page has each chapter. It's a large encyclopedic affair, but one column is in Hebrew, the next is the Septuagint, the next is the Latin, then comes the English, the French, and the German, so that I have all six on one page. 
And as I glanced at this in the Septuagint, I had the remarkable astonishment of learning that the word that is translated commit or roll in the Greek is apocalypsis. It's the word apocalypse, the same word for the book of Revelation. And, and what it is really saying in the uh, text is unveil your life to the Lord. Roll it upon him, but unveil it. Let him look at every part of it. Put yourself under the scrutiny of God's x-ray. Let him put you in the fluoroscope and, and look through you at all moments and see everything that is within you. When this, this text, Commit thy way unto the Lord, has a very interesting history in German because perhaps the second most famous hymn in German after Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is Paul Gerhardt's Befiel du Deine Wege, which is just commit your whole way upon the Lord. And he took Luther's translation and turned it into a hymn that is better known in Germany, perhaps, than Rock of Ages or Jesus, Lover of My Soul, is in this country. And I discovered when I found that this psalm uh, had been put into this famous verse, I discovered that when the first Lutheran church in the, in the city of Philadelphia had the, the foundation stone laid, on May the 2nd in 1743, they sang this hymn down in the lower part of Philadelphia, and then on October 20th of that same year, when Peter Muhlenberg, the founder of the Lutheran church in America, came here to Philadelphia again, they sang this hymn, Commit thy way, roll your way, disclose your way unto the Lord. This was Livingston's favorite text. And many a time when he was in Africa at the fork of a road, he'd say in his diary, I came to the fork of the road and I simply said, Commit thy way unto the Lord. And he said, Sometimes I would feel led to go right and sometimes to go left. And his explorations in the unknown dark continent we're largely following the magnetic compass of this verse, commit thy way unto the Lord. Queen Louise of Prussia, who was queen when Napoleon's armies came in and destroyed Germany, wrote a diary in which she thought of the horrors of her country occupied by Napoleon's armies. And she copied in her diary a little verse from Goethe, which Thomas Carlyle has translated into English, who never ate his bread in sorrow, who never spent the darksome hours weeping and watching for the morrow, he knows ye not, ye gloomy powers. And here, when the queen was thinking of this horror, she then wrote in the diary, I was in tears as I thought of this verse of Goethe, till I went over to the harpsichord and sat down and played and sang, Befiel du Deine Wege, commit thy way unto the Lord. Now when you do this, I want you to notice what God has guaranteed. Because it says, commit thy way to the Lord, trust in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He will act. Now we're, we're God has bound himself here. This is a tremendous psalm of contract. God, the party of the first part, is in contract with you and with me. And he says, you do this and I will do this. You do this and I will do this. 
You definitely trust and thou shalt dwell in the land. You delight and you will have the desires of thine heart. You commit, he shall bring it to pass. Then the fourth verb is in verse 7 where he commands us to rest. And once more, there are many different words in the Hebrew that are translated by the English word rest. But this word, damam, really means be silent, be still. It's not the rest of sitting down, it's the rest of keeping your mouth shut. Be silent to the Lord. The Hebrew word damam is an onomatopoetic word from the sound that you make with your mouth closed. Mm, mm. Which, by the way, as I went through books, I discovered that our word dumb comes from this same word. And a man may be dumb in two or three different words, in two different ways. You know, it was out in Iowa that the uh, inhabitants of the deaf and dumb asylum asked that the state of Iowa change the name of their institution for that of mutes because they said we may not be able to talk but we are not dumb. Well, today, dumb means stupid. But what God wants is not stupid Christians, but he wants Christians that will not talk back to him. And this is what this word means, be silent. There's the silence and quietness of resting, and there is also the stupefaction of one who is lost in wonder and astonishment. The Jewish translation of the Old Testament made up here in North Philadelphia at Dropsy College, the center of Jewish culture for the world today, perhaps. The Jewish translation here, American Jewish translation, gives this, resign thyself unto the Lord. Give over, stop struggling, rest, keep still. He knows what he's doing. Don't talk back, trust, delight, commit, rest. And lastly, in verse 7, the hardest perhaps of all, it says, wait patiently. Now, when I began to look this word up, I soon discovered that there is no word in the Hebrew for patiently. But there are... Uh, a dozen words that are translated wait, like a servant waiting for a tip, like another servant waiting to hear the orders of his master, like a hunter waiting for game to come into a trap, like someone who is sick in the middle of the night and waits for the dawning of the morning. All these are different words. But this word here is one word, and they couldn't make it out in English with one word, so they put wait patiently. But I, I believe that, that there's a deeper meaning than wait patiently, because the root word comes from the Hebrew to be twisted, to be turned, to be turned around. The last paragraph in the book of Judges, the children of Benjamin, the sons of Benjamin, when all of their town had been destroyed and their women killed and they had no wives, were told to go and hide in the grapeyards of Shiloh until the women of the tribe came out of Shiloh to dance in circles. Then they were to seize upon them and carry them away as their wives. You read this little story in the last paragraph in the book of Judges. Well, this word dancing in circles is the same word as wait patiently. So at least you can see as you look at every time that it's used in the Bible that there's something in this word that I think was not completely seized by the translators. 
It's also used in other places, translated to writhe, to tremble. And I believe that when it says wait patiently, that all that the word means must mean something like this. Wait for me, says the Lord, with trembling longing. This is the way you're to wait upon me. Now here, then, we take what I have said and we bring it down into a single paragraph. We're forced to live in a world of evil. We're forced to live in a world of monstrous graft and corruption, of pride and arrogance, of war and blood. Fret not thyself, fret not thyself, fret not thyself. They shall be cut off, they shall be destroyed, cut off, cut off, cut off. And you, while you wait, Oh, here it is, trust, delight, commit, rest, and wait. This is the course of the Christian life. It begins with this trusting. It goes on to knowing him as a person. It comes still farther that we apocalypse our lives, we unveil them and take off all the wraps so that he sees us exactly as we are under the x-ray. And then we rest with that which never answers back to him and with trembling longing wait for the time when he shall bring to pass the consummation of his plan. Oh, we can live with a God like this. He knows what he's doing. And we must each one be sure that he is in the place that the Lord has for him. So that as we go on from day to day and moment to moment, our hearts shall be filled with singing. And we will know what it is to have new desires from the new heart and to know those desires fulfilled. Let us pray. O our God and Father, how we thank thee for thy word the inestimable booty that is to be found here, and that the digger we mine, the deeper we mine into this wonderful word, the more we find of treasure. Bless, we pray thee, the going forth of this word. Thou knowest the need of each one. And we pray thee for each case as thou dost see and know the need that thou wilt Help us to understand that the solution to every problem, the end of all frustrations, is to live with thee unfrettingly and absolutely committing everything back to thee who rulest all things. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.